It's wonderful to see you at church uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Huey, if we haven't met before. Um, and uh, let me add my welcome to, to Mike's, and uh, especially if you're joining us for the first time today. Uh, it, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, we love having uh, new people join us uh, from week to week. Uh, so I hope that you keep on joining us uh, as we explore uh, God's Word together and what it teaches us about uh, Jesus uh, and His work. the most dramatic um, introduction to a sermon I've ever seen. Um, but uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer and ask for God's help this morning as we uh, open up His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering us together as your people this morning around your Word. And uh, Father, we pray that today you would be with us, uh, that you would teach us by your Spirit, and we pray that your Spirit would point us to just how wonderful uh, the good news of Jesus is uh, and what he has done for us. Uh, and uh, we pray that you would uh, please encourage our hearts uh, to be those who follow him uh, wholeheartedly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, what do you say to your loved ones as you prepare for your own death? Uh, what do you say to your loved ones as you prepare for your own death. Uh, I don't know whether you've had a near-death experience before, but uh, a few years ago I was um, actually admitted to hospital uh, with a fairly serious uh, internal bleeding. In fact, uh, there was one night in hospital where as I was getting out of bed, um, I had this huge bleed and I passed out. And uh, when I regained my consciousness, um, I found myself uh, on the floor in a pool of my own blood. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the end. Uh, I don't know what I have, but it's not good, and uh, uh, I don't have very long to live. The hardest thing about it, though, was thinking about what I would say to my wife and my children. I mean, what do you say to those you love? as you prepare for death. You know, when you are in that situation, it's not the, it's not the time to say unimportant things, is it? It's not the time to say frivolous things. Rather, it's the time to say important things. It's the time to say things that are really, truly on your heart. Now, of course, I didn't die. Um, I'm still here. Uh, my wife uh, tells me that I'm often very melodramatic about my uh, sicknesses. Um, I have the man flu syndrome, uh, she says. But uh, death has a way of focusing our mind on the things that are important, doesn't it? And that's why the Bible is right when it says in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting. For death and the knowledge of death draws out the important things rather than the frivolous things in life. Now, uh, last week we began looking at uh, the final part of Matthew's Gospel, which uh, uh, I hope you remember is, is all about the death of Jesus. Uh, we saw Jesus predicting his own death uh, in two days' time at the time of Passover. Uh, we saw the value of Jesus' death 
uh, in that woman who, if you remember, poured expensive perfume uh, to anoint Jesus' body. But today, uh, we see Jesus having a final meal with his disciples where he shares some very important things, not frivolous things, but very important things as he prepares to die. And so let's go to the house of mourning today as we hear of the important things that Jesus says to his disciples as well as to us. Well, the first thing that Jesus wants his disciples to know here is that his death will come through betrayal. Uh, His death will come through betrayal. Uh, However, I want you to see that Jesus is not simply a tragic victim of betrayal and circumstances that are outside of his control. For it's true, as we saw last week, that Matthew consciously paints a picture of Jesus as the king who is in charge of everything that is happening to him as he approaches his death. And so, uh, you can see this, for example, in the fact that Jesus, uh, in this passage, is arranging the organization of this meal with his disciples before he dies. Uh, In verse 17, you can see there that his disciples ask him, uh, where should we go and prepare the Passover meal? But in verse 18, it seems that Jesus has already thought ahead. Uh, He's prepared ahead for what is about to happen. Because he's arranged with a man who lives in the city for the meal to be prepared in his house. Further, notice that Jesus has perfectly timed his death. Uh, We don't have control over when we die, do we? Just ask the family of that man who was tragically taken by a shark uh, this week uh, near Sydney Harbour. But in verse 18, notice that Jesus says to his disciples to say to this anonymous man who lives in the city, the teacher says, my time is at hand. In other words, Jesus has timed his death perfectly to coincide with the day of Passover. Um, As uh, Mike mentioned, the Passover uh, was a meal commemorating God's mighty rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, It was a meal that was to be celebrated in, in households or in families. It was a meal where a lamb was to be slaughtered to remember that on that very first Passover, each Israelite family slaughtered a lamb and painted its blood on their doorposts so that God's wrath would pass over them while killing every firstborn son in Egypt. It was to be a celebration where unleavened bread, that is, bread without yeast, was to be consumed to remember that they left Egypt in a hurry as God pulled them out of slavery. However, it's striking that in this Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples, there is no mention of a lamb. Did you notice that? And that's because uh, I think what's happening here is Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal one day 
before the actual day of Passover, because on the actual day of Passover, well, Jesus himself would be hanging, bleeding on a cross. He would be the Passover lamb that he sacrificed so that God's wrath for sin would be turned away from God's people. But further, notice that Jesus knows exactly in this passage who is going to betray him. Uh, in verse 20, he says to his disciples, remember me all, uh, these words, and look at verse 20, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 25, he privately identifies Judas, uh, one of the twelve disciples, as the specific one who would betray him. Uh, again, I want you to see uh, in this passage that Jesus' sovereign rule uh, or his control of all things and human responsibility go hand in hand in the Bible. That is, while Jesus sovereignly knows how all things will unfold, including who is going to betray him, because ultimately it's all unfolding according to plan, well, it doesn't reduce Judas to a mere puppet or a robot who doesn't have any moral responsibility for his actions. For uh, you can see there that uh, in verse 25, it's Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born at all. You see, Jesus holds him accountable, holds him responsible for his actions. But here's the thing, friends. Uh, did you notice the irony in this meal, in this meal that Jesus celebrates? I mean, the Passover meal, uh, if you uh, have a look at Exodus 12 uh, in your own time, was actually meant to be a family meal. It was a, a time where you would get together with your family uh, or your household uh, to celebrate God's kindness to you. And so it's striking here, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't celebrate this meal with his blood family. Rather, he celebrates this meal with his 12 disciples, who are his spiritual family, you see. Because in Jesus' mind, it's his spiritual family that takes precedence, even over his blood family. But the irony is that even as he enjoys this meal with his disciples, it's quite apparent that one of his disciples is not actually part of the family. And you know, outwardly, Judas was just like all the other disciples, wasn't he? You know, he, he ate and drank with the other disciples. He would have listened to the extraordinary teaching of Jesus along with the other disciples. He witnessed the astonishing miracles of Jesus along with all the other disciples. If you peered into that house that night as they were celebrating the Passover, it would have been, it would have appeared that Judas was simply a part of Jesus' family and part of his inner circle of friends. But did you notice that there is an important difference in this passage between the other disciples of Jesus and Judas? 
very possible to fool people around us, isn't it? But it is impossible to fool Jesus, who knows us just as he knows us. Now, as I know that there are many of us who willingly and joyfully follow Jesus as, as the Lord and King of our lives, however imperfectly, I know that many of you genuinely following Jesus as your king. But if you are here and you are somebody who cannot honestly say that Jesus is your Lord as well as your Savior, then will you submit your life to him as your king? Will you allow him to rule your life so that you to be part of his family. In some ways, it was too late for Judas, wasn't it, as we will see in the coming weeks. He had gone past the point of no return, but it is not too late for you. It's not too late for you. Now, friends, uh, if you go to the average non-Christian person on the street and ask them, why Jesus had to die on the cross, uh, what do you think they will say? Well, I reckon that if they are not hardened atheists, if they have any measure of respect for, for Jesus, then they would probably say something like, well, Jesus died as an example of love, as a supreme example of love. Uh, that's quite, quite a common answer that we will hear, isn't it? But it's very hard to see how someone dying in and of itself can be an example of love for his I mean, if I said to my wife, uh, darling, I, I love you so much that I'm going to fling myself off a cliff to my death, and uh, that's how I will show you how I love you, uh, it just wouldn't make sense, would it? I mean, how, how is my death going to be a loving thing for my wife, who is now a widow, my children are without a father. But notice in this final Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus explains the significance of his death, which is the reason why his death is so loving and so wonderful. And so in verse 26, he takes a piece of bread and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Further, in verse 27, he takes a cup, and uh, after giving thanks, he gives it to his disciples, saying, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, now, it's true that uh, lots and lots of ink has been spilt over uh, these words in Matthew's Gospel uh, all through the history of the church. Uh, in particular, people have been willing to die over the meaning of the word is in this passage. For when Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood, is he talking literally, uh, saying that uh, this bread and this, this wine uh, literally becomes his body and blood? as uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches, for example. 
way is Jesus speaking figuratively. Uh, you know, um, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the door. But we don't think that Jesus is saying that he's a plank of wood, do we? We, we, we understand those things to be figurative. And so, uh, many Christian people, and uh, Protestants in particular, uh, have understood uh, these words to be figurative. However, it's also true that a lot of this debate assumes that this passage is speaking about the ongoing practice of um, celebrating the Lord's Supper, of having a symbolic meal as Christian people. But friends, I want you to see here that this passage in Matthew has nothing to do with the ongoing celebration of what has come to be known as the Lord's Supper. Uh, now, it's not that there's anything wrong with celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, um, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, in a little while. It's just that this passage here is not about Jesus commanding his disciples to continue this practice into the future. In fact, uh, here's a bit of a tip on uh, Bible the Bible, do not always trust the headings that you see in your Bible. So what is the heading that you see in your Bible um, on top of verse 26? Can somebody call it out? If I heard it. What does it say? Thank you. So it's institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, do you have that heading in your Bibles? I'm assuming most of us do. But can you see here that nowhere in this passage does Jesus institute or put into place the Lord's Supper as an ongoing practice? Uh, in Luke's Gospel, there are the words, do this in remembrance of me, which uh, may be taken to be words of institution, but it's not actually found here in Matthew's Gospel. And so, whilst the headings in the Bible can sometimes be, be helpful, um, just know that it's not actually a part of the Bible, and it's just something that the translators have put in to try and be helpful. But obviously, uh, there are times when it's not helpful because they, they get it wrong. And so, if this passage is not about the ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper, then what's it doing here? Well, I think um, it's simply here to help us to understand the significance of Jesus' death for us as his disciples. Uh, you might have noticed the word covenant there in verse 28, uh, which is a very important word uh, in the Bible. Uh, if you remember, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were rescued by God's grace uh, out of slavery in Egypt, and they were brought to Mount Sinai where they were given the law, and uh, God at that place entered into a covenant relationship with his people, saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The problem, however, was that the people of God were never able to keep their end of the covenant, you see. They were not able to live as God's people and keep God's law because of their sinful hearts. It wasn't a problem with the covenant itself, but it was a problem with the sinful human heart. 
that refused to live God's way and chose to live their own way. For you see, the old covenant was only ever meant to be temporary so that it would highlight our need for forgiveness of sins and point us to God's new covenant where God would deal with the problem of sin forever. That's a bit like a photo uh, you may carry around uh, of your loved one uh, in your wallet. Hands up if you carry a photo of, of a loved one in your wallet. Mike is the only romantic person uh, in this building, so he carries a photo of, of Kip. Um, you know, when you carry a photo of your loved one in your in your in your wallet, um, it, it's not actually the reality, is it? It's just a picture that points you to the real thing. I mean, when I get home to my wife. Uh, it would be rather strange if I got out my wallet and got out a picture of her and started kissing and cuddling the photo rather than kissing and cuddling my wife. Because the picture is only ever meant to point to the reality. For the reality is so much better. You see, the old covenant was only ever a picture pointing to a greater reality. It was, if you like, the shadow. Whereas the new covenant that Jesus ushered in was the reality. And here, what Jesus is saying is that his death on the cross would usher in the new covenant age. Jesus would deal with the problem of sin forever by going to the cross and having his body broken and spilling his own blood so that God's just wrath for your sin and my sin might be satisfied and forgiveness might flow to you. He would deal with the problem of his people not being able to keep the law by keeping the law for them and giving them his spirit so that they might now as forgiven people obey the law in their hearts. And so friends, Yeah. Uh, today, and, and you are not a Christian person. 
that's the case, then it's wonderful having you joining with us today. But perhaps in your heart you know it is also true that you are a sinner and you have not been living God's way, but living life ignoring your Creator and His will for you. And if that's you, then the wonderful news of Jesus is that He died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. It's for the many things that He has done. Jesus didn't just die for His twelve disciples, but He includes many others in that definite endorsement. So do you receive forgiveness from Jesus? This morning, uh, Jesus says one more very important thing to comfort his disciples as he prepares for his death. Now, what is that very important thing? Well, it's the truth that death will not be the end for his disciples or for them. Now, you can see there in verse 29 where Jesus says, I, will, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, I actually find uh, these words very moving because uh, remember the context of this passage. Uh, Jesus knows that he is going to suffer and die, not just an ordinary death, but uh, a death where he bears the sins of the whole world. He knows that one of his disciples and a member of his inner circle will turn on him and betray him. And as we will see next week, uh, he knows that even his closest friends, not just Judas, but his other closest friends, will all flee from him in his greatest hour of need. I mean, what would you do if you were going to your death and you, you knew that your friends would treat you in this way? If it were me, I, I would want to give them a piece of my mind. Jesus had the presence of mind here to comfort his sorrowful and confused disciples by reminding them that his death will not be the end. The picture here is of a great feast in heaven. Just as Jesus had just used the cup of wine as a symbol for his death and his blood being poured out as a sacrifice for the sins of many, but here he uses the cup as a symbol for feasting. It's more like you know, breaking out an expensive bottle of wine or a bottle of Penfold's grains on that special occasion and pouring a uh, glass for everyone who is around. For Jesus wants his disciples to know that in the future he will sit with his disciples, feasting with them in the kingdom of heaven. For the death of Jesus will not be the end, but simply a prelude to his resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection will be the guarantee that Jesus' disciples will also live with him forever in his kingdom. It's a great comfort for Christians to know that death is not the end. 
simply the gateway to a glorious life. So we live in a world where death can come suddenly. As I mentioned, uh, just this week, a man was suddenly taken by a shark. Just this week, official rep- uh, just this week, hundreds of people died suddenly in a landslide in Brazil. Just this week, official records tell me that over a million people died in our world. Each second, someone is dying, and the march of death is relentless. And one day, it will come to you, and it will come to me. Some of you have been close to this. Others have had, others have seen loved ones close to death, or breathing their last. But what a comfort to know that those who are disciples of Jesus can look forward to a future beyond death because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus that we must embrace. Do you know discomfort in your life? Do you know this joy in the midst of the sorrows and the confusions of this life? It is because of discomfort and joy that Jesus brings that the disciples of Jesus in the very final verse of this passage can sing a hymn. It's strange that you would sing in the midst of death, isn't it? But Christians have always been people who can sing in the midst of death. For we know that Jesus, our King, has died to bring us forgiveness and has risen to give us a glorious future beyond death. pray, uh, thanking God for the death of our Lord Jesus, and uh, later on, uh, let's sing with our hearts for what he has done for us. Will you join with me as I pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning, and we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that even though he was the Son of Man, glorious king who had the command of angels who could choose to do anything uh, that he came into this world uh, to have his body broken for us and to have his blood spilled for us on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. My father, uh, what a wonder he would die for undeserving people like us who have failed in keeping your law and living your way. And so, Father, we want to thank you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to first see uh, the wonder of the cross of the Lord Jesus, and that you would help us to see him truly as uh, the Lord and King of this world joyfully and thankfully give our lives uh, in obedience to you. Please help us and keep us from being presumptuous in our faith, but help us to continue to walk with you 